Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, September 28th, 2020. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim finishes up the history of the Disney princesses in the parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that explaining to a child that we're all mortal and that death is inescapable is the hardest part of being a birthday clown. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's more to the effect of how do you express that with a balloon animal lens? <laughs> Hang on, need more balloons. Just a few more seconds. I need to do the Sith for the figure of death. Okay, hang on. <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking about I was doing my walk this morning, you know, and I do this like a, a two mile walk at six a.m. to sort of get my exercise out of the day, and mm. I was trying to come up with introductions and you know the the sort of the the material that we do with Aaron and stuff mm. in the shows and. I had this like metacognition moment where I mm-hmm. thought to myself, it's a good thing that neither, that both you and I are married to Nancy and Laurel because if we had to date <laughs> now and we had to go to an Applebee's oh. and explain to someone we've never met before what we do for a living, that would not go. We it would be no, it would no, be no, all no. over social media like let me tell you about this guy that I met today at Applebee's. Yeah. Anyway. Nancy and I have actually had this conversation. It's like, oh, thank God we don't have to date. <laughs> it's like, would not want to be out there today. <laughs> exactly. And that leads us in to our shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Because thank you guys for subscribing. You let us do this for a living. Also, uh, Jim, this past weekend, mm-hmm. uh, I walked around all four Walt Disney World parks. So you will have exclusive Bandcamp audio, folks, of that very, very soon. Plus, Jim and I are recording scripted Bandcamp exclusive shows now on Disneyland Circus Fantasy, which will be perfect for curling up next to a warm fire on crisp fall evenings. And thanks to new subscribers Nick K, Dr. JK, and Jessica B, and to longtime subscribers Chris M, Ryan C, and Walt K. Jim, these are the folks who blow up the balloons, rack the plates, and place the aliens that we aim for with our pie cannons over at Toy Story Midway Mania in Hollywood Studios. Jessica would also like to say that those are Woody and Buzz's real personalities and that Jesse and Bullseye bringing homemade donuts for the entire team every Friday. True story. Do they hose the place down between? <laughs> Giant guard. That's why the floor is concrete. Giant ah, hoses. Okay. By the way, Jim, since I'm heading into the parks this weekend, anything special you want me to record? With all of these holiday, uh, the special Halloween cavalcades or that sort of thing. Oh, good idea. Yeah, what do they do for soundtracks or that sort of thing? I mean, it's it the Halloween material or standard cavalcade music or what? I believe it is special Halloween music. I will record some and we'll release it next week. Oh, cool, cool. All right. Good idea. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim. There's a new security tent up along the walkway from the Grand Floridian to the Magic Kingdom. So that's encouraging, but I still think we got a couple more weeks until this thing is open. By the way, Jim, I measured the walking distance from the farthest point of the Grand Flow over by the entrance to the villas all the way to the Magic Kingdom turnstiles, and it's just under one mile. So that's about a 15 or 20 minute walk for most people. But the thing is, like, I think if you, if you consider the weight for a boat, to the Magic Kingdom, that's going to be a faster option, right? I would agree. Also, uh, remember that the monorail isn't running at the Poly. So if you're thinking of walking, it's about a mile and a half from the farthest point at the Poly over by the TTC to the Magic Kingdom. So that's about 25 or 30 minutes. So normally, 
it's probably faster to walk over the TTC and take an express monorail. But if you're on the west side of the poly, over by Fiji, Tuvalu, or Eotaroa, and like it's Thanksgiving or Christmas crowds, the walk to the Magic Kingdom through the Grand Floridian might be faster. So if you try this, let us know. Speaking of the Polynesian, Laurel and I were at the Met Museum in New York last weekend, going through the art of Oceana, the people of the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, while I was there, I'm checking out the art to see how authentic Disney's stuff is over at the Poly, because, you know, that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. And I didn't know this, but Aotearoa is the Maori name for New Zealand. So that was that was new for me. Mm-hmm. Also, the artwork at the Poly is yeah, pretty close to the art styles that we saw at the Met. The Disney stuff is more stylized in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's based on actual indigenous art, so... So that's good to know. More power to them. It's just the level of work that went in and then they step back for the Disney stylization. And it's just a question yeah. of how far back do you step? I think it's pretty good. I mean, again, it's a it's an interpretation and a stylization mm-hmm. of it, but it's pretty good. I mean, not only that, but not only the shapes mm-hmm. and the figures that are represented. So like the stylized heads look like the stylized heads in the in the museum, but mm-hmm. the the color palette is also the same. I mean, it's a little bit brighter for Disney, mm-hmm. or maybe the museum stuff is a little bit more weathered and old, but I mean, in general, it's the right color palette too. Okay. Glad you went and checked that out. I mean, it just the fact that you're out at the Met, that's good. Yeah, exactly. The museum was open. It was fabulous. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Also this week, uh, Jim, Run Disney announced the virtualization of the January Walt Disney World Marathon and the Disney Princess Half Marathon in February. Everybody knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. No surprises here. I don't think this is uh, this is anything unexpected, Jim. Do you? No, no. And in fact, especially on the heels of yesterday's news, where we saw Black Widow was initially supposed to come out May of this year, going to grab summer, and now it's all the way to May of 2021. So, so let's talk about that in the context of Mulan Premium Video on Demand (PVOD), mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that has to be a failure. Then the weird thing is, just this past weekend. On the Emmys, they ran the trailer for the very first Marvel Studios uh, limited series for Disney Plus, uh, WandaVision. Mm-hmm. And the argument in house is like, look, the MCU up until this point has all been in theaters. And Black Widow is supposed to be launching, you know, the very next phase of the, the MCU. So we just could not do it there. We could do WandaVision there, because this was always designed for that space, but not this one. And mm-hmm. I think Mulan, the live-action reboot, has been a certain amount of frustration at Disney about that, because they spent so much time and put so much effort into crafting that film with the notion that it would be the first real giant blockbuster that Disney had ever made for the Chinese market, and it completely misfired there. Yeah, I think that did factor into it. I think where it'll get interesting is we're still waiting a decision on Pixar's Soul, which still has a November release date. And if that gets pushed to Disney Premium, we can say, okay, all right, maybe that worked financially. If, on the other hand, that just goes straight to Garden Variety Disney Plus, we're going to know Mulan just did not work the way Disney had hoped, or at least in the premium setup. I mean, there were a couple of things that were working against it. One, it's mm-hmm. a remake of a movie we've already seen. Yep. Two, it's not the favorite movie of many people to begin with. Mm-hmm. Three, it was $30, which is a fairly large price point for something that you knew was going to be free on the channel 
two months from now. That's it exactly. But Disney was legally obligated to reveal that. It turns out as part of the language for Disney Plus, if we don't announce this ahead of when it launches as a premium offering, we'll get bad publicity, we'll get hammered by lawsuits. So it's like, you know, let's just honor the terms of the contract, put it out there. And they did. They cut themselves off at the knees when they did that. Yeah. So I think if they if they were to release a Pixar film and they mm-hmm. put it at 1999 mm-hmm. and they said, look, this isn't going to be on Disney Plus for six months. November, you got Thanksgiving, you got family around, you got mm-hmm. Christmas coming up. People would spend the $20 to have the whole family sit around and watch a brand new Pixar movie mm-hmm. in a way that they wouldn't for a live action remake of Mulan. I think that's a better value proposition. I think that's a valid point. Now, mind you, there's distinct differences and there's story-wise and that sort of thing and some amazing- $30 act- worth? It, but there you go. All right. $30 that's worth? $30 worth. Same. That's an interesting enough price point that people pause. But it's interesting right. you, you talk about the 1999 one. It's just so strange how even $10 will make people sometimes hit the brakes. Well, the thing is, I mean, one movie ticket is probably $10 everywhere now, right? Yep. I mean, yeah. So mm-hmm. two movie tickets, 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Kids will enjoy it. It's an easier sell. No, I agree. Uh, plus, I agree. Plus the picture. Anyway, mm-hmm. going back to the parks, Jim, uh, Disney increased park hours across all four parks this past weekend. So the Magic Kingdom closed at seven instead of six. Mm-hmm. Epcot closed at nine instead of seven. Hollywood Studios closed at eight. And the Animal Kingdom closed at six. So I don't think this is really surprising, Jim. Remember back in May, you and I talked about a survey that we did at TouringPlans.com mm-hmm. where we asked people who planned trips between mid-March and mid-July that were later canceled because of the pandemic when they planned to return to Walt Disney World. And a plurality of them said September and October. In fact, those two months were the two most popular months by far. Mm-hmm. Um, with another spike happening next spring break. So those crowds seem to be happening now. So the thing that we thought would happen back in May mm-hmm. seems to be seems to be true. Okay. So while I've been here this week, our statistician, Steve mm-hmm. Bloom, is here as well. Uh, one of the things that he points out is he's been getting to the studios uh, early every day. Mm-hmm. And although the official hours for the studios start at 10 a.m., this week mm-hmm. they've been opening the park at 9 to deal with the crowds. So rides like Runaway Railway are open. Once the park opens, you can get in early, get on a ride on Slinky Dog, then get in line for Runaway Railway all before you've got to get your app ready for a Rise of the Resistance boarding group at uh, 10 a.m. The wow. interesting thing about that is, so Steve's mm-hmm. staying at the Poly, and, uh, sorry, he's not at the Poly, he's at, he's at Pop. Mm-hmm. He's having to leave his room at the Pop Mm-hmm. for the Skyliner station at 8 a.m. or two hours before the park's officially op- open to be in the park by 9. So that's my tip for this week. If you're staying at Pop or Art of Animation and you want to get to the studios, there were 20 people in line, 20 groups in line, mm-hmm. uh, Steve said, this morning before 8 a.m. So get there early or, uh, or drive. That's a great tip. Wow, to be able to knock out three marquee things like that. Yeah, I mean, before the park actually opens, officially opens. So That's amazing. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if Disney actually extended the, uh, the park opening uh, mm-hmm. or made it a little bit earlier, too. A couple of the things I think are adding to the park crowds, because I got this question on Twitter. Might as well mm-hmm. address it now. You know, Disney and Universal have done a really good job in reopening the parks. Mm-hmm. They've got stringent mask enforcement. They're sanitizing everything in sight, and they're keeping everyone pretty well socially distant. And I think that's showing 
a lot of people that these relatively straightforward things can go a long way towards risk mitigation. And speaking of that, mm-hmm. Jim, did you see the love song from Josh tomorrow to, to Gavin Newsom in California asking him to reopen Disneyland? Baby, I've changed. <laughs> I was last week, I think after we recorded, where the mayor of Anaheim literally, I want to say he, he stood at Garden Walk with Disneyland looming in the background and talked about, this is a disaster. I mean, all these businesses yeah. are, are closed around here. It's time to reopen. So I'm kind of hoping that this one-two punch does it. But if you were, were Governor Newsom, half of the state is burning down. Half of the state is dealing with pandemic increases. Yeah. Hey, can this theme park open? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's got he's got a lot on his plate right now, right? He does. He does. Obviously, he's, he's got to be worried about the, the health and safety of California residents, number mm-hmm. one. But I think Disney's shown, again, that they can operate the parks in a, again, relatively safe manner. Mm-hmm. We should have a vaccine, you know, in the next six months or so. Mm-hmm. I think just looking at it from a cold political calculation, right? Let's assume that Gavin Newsom doesn't have a human feeling in his heart at all. <laughs> if he's just looking at his reelection mm-hmm. possibilities, right? He could rationalize the opening today mm-hmm. using just the things that we just said yep. and making the point that you made about the economy, right? So mm-hmm. I think I, I would be surprised if it wasn't open in October. I'd be shocked, actually, if Disneyland didn't open in October based on what we know now. Yeah, folks have gotten in and have done the shopping at, at downtown Disney and then drifted up to the, the central plaza have noticed the plexis in place now. Yeah, signs, you know, uh, signs are on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of the indicators are there. They're just waiting for a certain guy up in Sacramento to turn a key. Awesome. And uh, speaking of uh, the parks, uh, last night there was a fireworks test at Epcot for Harmonious. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. Our, uh, our own Steve Bloom is here. State of Blake to film it for uh, Facebook. So, Jim, if they're testing for Harmonious now with the pyro in pl- uh, pyro effects in place, does that mean Epcot Forever is done? That's it? Not to be mean here, but there were lots of tests of Rivers of Light. <laughs> 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 I'm sure the Titanic had sea trials as well. <laughs> there you go. All right. Just saying. I'm hoping it all went well last time. And our buddy, Bio Reconstruct, we've been watching them assembling the yeah. launches and the floats. And it's great that you're testing Pyro. It's like, does the show work? Yeah. I guess our answer will be, Len, if in fact Epcot Forever suddenly resurrects itself. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. Well, the thing is, uh, so a couple of things would have to happen. One, mm-hmm. Disney would have to be okay with a nighttime fireworks show mm-hmm. in the next couple of months. The Magic 8-Ball says that's probably not going to happen. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it in Epcot, or you're going to do it at the Magic Kingdom after everyone leaves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We are coming down to our window of time for daylight savings time. Right. That's true. And even with the current hours, once we go to daylight savings time, it's like, well, it is in fact dark enough now to do a nighttime Epcot show. But then it becomes, can we get guests to responsibly yeah socially distance in the dark for one of these shows when epcot forever debuted you and i were both told it would last until october 1st 2020 right october 1st 2020 is thursday Mm -hmm. is that still the deadline for i mean harmonious isn't ready Mm -hmm. but even if you say okay you know all of the work stopped on harmonious Mm -hmm. from mid-march through mid-august that's what, four months. Mm-hmm. Does that mean Harmonious isn't more than four months away? We see it in January? If you talk with anybody at Disney right now, it's like, 
just, we don't do schedules in pen anymore. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like we have a meeting, we agree to a date, and an hour later, that date is dead. We basically write it on write it on our hand in, uh, yeah. in a erasable sharpie. Yeah, yeah. If you actually talk with folks about harmonious. Why Disney definitely wants to get this show into that park is they are still relying on locals largely to come into the park. And if we have a new night nighttime show at Epcot, all of our annual pass holders, all of our locals will in fact come out. And so that means more business at our restaurants around the park. From that point of view, especially during a period when we're still thinking that we're six months out from a vaccine. We need an excuse to get the locals back in. Having a new nighttime show at Epcot would do that. It's kind of the spin that Universal is now doing with all of the haunted houses they completed. Just sort of like, oh, and we're going to open two more that you you have to come to the park to see. Yeah. And convincing the locals you got to come out again. Actually, a great idea on uh, on Universal's part. That's uh, that got a lot of a lot of attention on social media. And it did. Crowds have been mm-hmm. crowds have been really really. Solid mm-hmm. over the weekends too. When uh, when it's free for them to come in, <laughs> come in and see them because <laughs> Universal <laughs> sold them a, a passport through the end of the year back back in August. Remember, you know, you're doing all of these haunted houses during the day, so you have folks coming in from the stark Central Florida sunlight into a darkened soundstage to do this thing. <laughs> One of the folks who had got lucky enough to get a reservation to get in steps in out of the sunlight and it, and it just steps in and loudly says, geez, I can't see anything. And somebody from in the haunted house in the distance shots like, but I can see you. <laughs> Give that person a raise, Jim. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's yep. great. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, well, uh, last uh, news item before we get on to listener questions. Uh, Disney's filed another patent application last week that seems to refer to autonomous robots or droids Mm -hmm. interacting with guests. This one is called Techniques for Inferring the Configuration of a Room from Skeleton Tracking. It basically says, if I know that these objects are in the room and they're about this size and this is their position, how do I navigate around them? So again, I think when the Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel opens, which I'm told is still 2021 is the target, yeah, Jim, yeah. I will be very surprised if we do not see free, free-ranging droids mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in this hotel. There's at least one droid, or they've been testing a droid with the notion of it goes to your room and delivers a message. Darth Vader, we'll see you now. <laughs> well, there you go. So the chime at your door opens and there's a droid which enters your room, which has to know the configuration to set up the story that you then take part in. So skeleton tracking, got to do some... Research on what that term means. No, the patent's right there if you want to take a look at it. Okay. All right. On to listener questions. This one uh, in from Patrick, who says, on a recent show, you mentioned that there were never any real theme park attractions based on the movie Aladdin. I remember going to the Disney Quest in Chicago when it first opened, and one of its attractions or experiences was a virtual reality Aladdin's magic carpet ride, where you rode the carpet through a computer-generated Agrabah. I appreciated the concept and what they tried to do with Disney Quest, but despite being a Disney, uh, big Disney fan... We likely only went two or three times. Disney seems to have decided Disney Quest is best left forgotten. So I'm not sure whether the Aladdin ride really counts as an attraction or one Disney cares to remember. So Jim, I actually tested this in the parks. I was about to say that I remember the Imagineering yeah. Lab in uh, Epcot, Park. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think of when you put on the visor that was roughly the length of a crocodile snout? The thing that I was most interested in then, and of course I was 
I was a college student doing computer science then, so I was obviously super interested in technology. It wasn't so much how it worked at that moment in time, but I was excited by Disney going down that path. Like, you know, we all know, uh, or I think we've all heard mm-hmm. this thing called Moore's Law, which says that the computing power doubles roughly every, every two years, mm-hmm. every year. And it's really like the number of transistors on a chip. Or, and even then, it's not even completely accurate. But mm-hmm. you get the point, right? Over the long term, 10, 20, 30 years, the amount of computing power that we have now will be infinitesimally small compared to what we will have in the future. In fact, I'm going to geek out here for a second and say NVIDIA released its latest GPUs a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the computing power on that single graphics processing unit now would have been the 15th most powerful computer in the world 20 years ago. Wow. You can pick it up for $400. Oh. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. So for mm. me, it wasn't that I was objectively evaluating, you know, the right experience itself. But, mm. you know, if you think about what would have been possible, like, so this was the mid-90s, right? If Disney would have stuck with that, what would have been possible with, virtual reality now, given the investment they were willing to put into it, it would have been, it would have been, a, been in a vastly different place. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing that excited me. Mm-hmm. I get that. And it, it just, when did this become CNET.com, Jim? All right. Here's a uh, listener question from Susan mm-hmm. who says, I have a trip scheduled for the first week of December based on low crowds. Crowd calendar at terrainplans.com says one, but I see wait times of 60 to 120 minutes for the popular rides at Hollywood Studios. The only reason I want to go to the parks is to be able to see Flight of Passage, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and Rise of the Resistance without a huge wait. And now that I have to pick my park in advance and can't park hop, I'll only have one chance to try and get on Rise. It seems that lately it's broken down more than it's running. As someone who doesn't get to travel to Florida very often... Should I go or should I wait until next year? Ah, so this is a great question, Susan. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things. I think you should go now for a few reasons. One, yeah, those posted wait times say 60 to 120 minutes. But in historical contexts, these are still basically the lowest crowds in a generation, right? They're the only they're the lowest crowds that you that you will see not only throughout a year, but typically you have to have like back-to-back hurricanes mm-hmm. to see the kind of low crowds that we see day after day typically, in Walt Disney World. If you ask Floridians, they love back-to-back hurricanes. It's like, yeah, ooh, fantastic. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, just, every June, I just stick my, uh, my lawn furniture in the garage. <laughs> I'll see it in November. It's fine. It's fine. But the other thing is this. Those wait times, especially at Hollywood Studios, are way higher than the actual waits. So in a typical, in a typical day, if everything's running normally, you would expect to wait somewhere around 80% of the posted wait time. So if you see wait times of 60 to 120 minutes, you would expect to wait 48 to maybe 96 minutes in line for those rides, 80% of those numbers. What we're seeing though, especially at the studios, especially last weekend, is that your wait is under 40% of those posted wait times. So a posted wait of 60 gets you 24 and a posted wait of 120 gets you like under 40, maybe 35, right? So we don't know yet why Disney's doing that mm-hmm. because it's not like in the studios you can go anywhere else mm-hmm. to get in line, right? I'm, I'm just, unless they just don't want people in lines, period. But there's definitely a much larger gap 
recently, especially at the studios, mm-hmm. between the posted wait time and the time you'll actually wait in line. So, Susan, that's why I think you should go now. Um, also, the weather's going to be good in December, so a good time to go. One suggestion, though, given the way people are queuing up now with social distance and that sort of thing, yep. especially when it comes to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, sunscreen, yeah. lots and lots and lots. Yeah, even of in sun- December, yeah, yeah. sunscreen. I'm, in fact, I'm going into the parks later on today. I've got mm-hmm. a long sleeve shirt on just for the sunscreening thing. Mm-hmm. So, All right, here's an email from Xavier. And Jim, this is for you. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, hi, guys. I live in California. I'm an AP holder. I'm not sure if someone's already asked this question, but I'm a big Disney parade Fan, and I want to know if there's ever been a parade that was in the planning for either Disneyland or DCA, but that never happened. Also, do you have a favorite parade of your own from any Disney parks? Yes, there was one. It was actually planned for when Disneyland was going to do the really ambitious redo of Tomorrowland, when it was known as the Tomorrowland 2055 project with the idea of what would Tomorrowland look 100 years after Disneyland opened. And so the idea is that it it was a place where, you know, aliens would traditionally land their their ships and come meet tourists, hang out in Disneyland. What what year was this? This was in development mid-90s. It's, uh, you know. Oh, okay. So tying into the theme. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah. If you you hammer on Tomorrowland 2055, there's a lot of concept art out there. In fact, this was such a sure thing. The Imagineering team actually had jackets made up that are very cool. But anyway, the the parade (laughs) they were going to do at night, this is the antecedent of Light Magic, which again opened at Disneyland in 1997. It was going to be called Light Keepers. Light Keepers, all right. You'd be standing on Main Street, and suddenly you would see a UFO come out of the sky, land behind Main Street, and then a door would open, and there would be this elaborate procession of aliens who were, who were the keepers of the light. Ooh, who the, really? Who the, that would march up the Main Street of Disneyland, head to, to Small World. And then when they finally exited its, at uh, the Small World gate, you'd see the same effect again, that they'd all climb back on their UFO and then fly back up. The saddest oh. part of this thing is what ultimately tripped it up is they kept trying to do a UFO effect. They brought right. Bob Gurin, who did the UFO effect for the L.A.'s Summer Olympics of 1984. People may right. remember the UFO that, that landed at part of that. Oh, I didn't know Bob Gurr did that, really? Yeah, that's Bob. Disney Imagineer, Bob Gurr. There we go. But they just couldn't get an impressive enough effect to then sell the idea that... <laughs> it was fine for the Olympics, but I mean, <laughs> this is Disneyland. <laughs> Bob basically explained to them, so to do this as a one-off in the stadium for one night, Easy to do this every night at Disneyland. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's it. Yeah, They've already yeah. done a new daytime parade, and but could we do a new nighttime? And they were circling back on light keepers, and the reason they were circling back on it is like, well, now we live in the era of drones. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, it, it would be relatively easy to create a drone, you know, with a, with a light assembly that could, in fact produce the effect exactly that he was looking for. But it's just now, unfortunately, you know, we live in a uh, an era where the company is like, well, yes, that's a lovely idea for a parade, but which IP do you plan on tying Lightkeepers to? Is it Lilo and Stitch or is it Treasure Planet? You know, please tell me which of our alien-based Disney films will you be using? And please don't say the cat from outer space. <laughs> thank, thank you for this meeting. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there are 
this is, is there concept art for this parade? There's I a find couple of pieces, but again, it start with Tomorrowland 2055. There's enough art there where you just get a sense, a taste of of what this was going to be look like. It was going to be amazing. Cool. I will look for that. All right. Uh, here's a, a quick question from Palmer and from Jim. We'll start with Palmer. Uh, and he wrote this to me on Twitter. He said, uh, Lentesta, I thought the festivals you mentioned at the end of each podcast were just made up. But this week where you mentioned the Whale Festival in Sitka, uh, I had just heard how one of our students at the University of Alaska Fairbanks went to that. And that's how he learned about the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And from Jim, Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote to me and said, is Aaron really going to be in Kernersville next weekend? So let me address Palmer's email first. Yes, every event that I mention in the show closing for Aaron is real, including the towns, the dates, and the hours. And I pick a random state every week, go to that state, state's uh, tourism website and find something that looks fun. In fact, I actually talked to Aaron, our producer, about this after I got Palmer's email. And Aaron said that when he was starting out as a morning show radio producer, they'd use a book called the Chase Calendar of Events book. And it was every event in every small town for that calendar year. And he would do basically the same thing. And then uh, to answer Jim's question as to whether Aaron is actually at each event, Jim I like to think that Aaron's presence is like a mother's love in that it surrounds us and is with us at all times. Even if we can't see it, we know it's there. (laughs) Finally, thanks to Trevor, who sent in some fabulous family photos of Walt Disney World from its first Christmas in 1971. And to Dave, who sent in family photos from Disneyland in 1962. Jim, we're going to do a a special Bandcamp exclusive show in December, right? Where... You tell the story of that first Christmas in Walt Disney World? Yes, 71, <laughs> where they had two bright, shiny dimes. And how many decorations can we buy for that? So, <laughs> so the funny thing was, when I was dating Trevor's photos, mm-hmm. I had to verify that it was 1971. And there were markings on the Polaroids that he scanned mm-hmm. that said January, February of 1972. But I wanted to make sure it was actually December. And so what I ended up doing is going back through the U.S. government's historical weather data Mm-hmm. for Florida from December 1971, because in the photos that Trevor sent in, everyone's wearing shorts. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that in December of 1971, Florida experienced a heat wave where the average temperatures were at least five degrees higher than they typically were. And that explains the shorts. And that's that along with a couple of other things allowed us to, uh, to date it definitively to Christmas of, of 1971. Very cool. Also, uh, Dave's photos are amazing because among other things, they show how detailed and intricate the costuming was for the Can-Can Girls at the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon in Disneyland in the 60s. At least that's what Dave says was his dad's reason for taking the pictures. Folks, you'll have to see them for yourselves. Jim, where can people send in their family photos for Disneyland and Walt Disney World? If they reach out to Nancy and myself through Jim at Jim Hill Media, we can typically arrange for a Dropbox, especially for the the larger photos. But yeah, we're happy to accept submissions, but at the same time, we're going through the pile and with Trevor's stuff, just chasing down decent stories about what it was like to be at Walt Disney World in December of 71, because the place had only been open two months at that point. One of the best photos that I thought came out of Trevor's collection, again, we'll talk about this, is Mm. did you see the line that I guess Trevor's parents took Mm. from the, the Skyway Buckets leaving Fantasyland and going oh. towards Tomorrowland, over, looking over Liberty Square. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So that was the line to get into mm-hmm. the sky buckets. Yep. So imagine where, you know, the, the entrance of It's a Small World is now. Mm-hmm. It went all the way past the farthest point 
for the Haunted Mansion entrance just to get on the Skyway. Crazy. And, and it wasn't just a single file line. These people were like five across. Yeah. Taking up virtually the entire area of that part of Fantasyland. Tomorrowland at this point is mostly behind a construction fence. In fact, oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even sawed in some of those. Photos. Yeah, yeah. So it, when you showed up there, you were among the first. It's like this version of the park really defined limited capacity. Oh yeah, I mean the the starkness of the landscaping mm-hmm. in Tomorrowland is one of the things I got out of photos. Also, how huge the Tomorrowland Speedway was back in the day. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll have to show these photos. Yeah, with it definitely, definitely. Also, just a quick note here. I'm sure a lot of folks have seen the images coming out of Tokyo Disneyland this week. They have just soft opened the Enchanted Tale of Beauty and the Beast attraction at that park. Have you seen any of the the video for this yet, Len? No, no. How does it look? It uses the trackless technology that hopefully Epcot will get to see with the Ratatouille adventure opening in France soon. But there's like three, maybe four big rooms where you go through and it's a very different take on a Disney theme park ride in that you sit in a room or you dance around a room while they perform Be Our Guest and then you move to another room and you're there with Belle and the Beast while they do the There's Something There number and you actually end up in the ballroom at the end of the film where Belle and the now transformed Beast are waltzing and you waltz along with them in your giant teacup. It's a ride done as a show. Interesting. I don't know if it comes across to the best effect as video. It doesn't officially open at the park till the 28th, which of course is the day this show goes live. If any of our listeners actually get over to Tokyo and do this in person, I'd love to get their take on it. I don't know how successful it is, but it is intriguing. And this this is the first time Disney's tried this in an attraction? A ride as a show, yes. When you're in Be Our Guest, they do upwards of two minutes of the song. And then move to the next room, and again, it's another good-sized chunk of something there, and then a Kill the Beast and the transformation scene, and then the waltzing at the end. And it's just sort of like, as opposed to using this trackless technology to move through multiple detailed, propped small rooms, it's you are in large spaces for large chunks of time. Kind of a different take on, on the Disney ride experience. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, it's all about Jim and the Disney princesses. We'll be right back. Uh, a couple shows ago, you had brought us up to 2008 when the Little Mermaid's Grotto opened at Disneyland Park in the old Circle Vision building. And then you hinted that when it came to the Disney princesses in the parks, everything would change in 2011 after someone at Disney saw a Disney on Ice show. And that was quite the cliffhanger, Jim. Uh, actually, it wasn't 2011. It was January of, of 2000. And oh, okay. Andrew Mooney, who had spent 20 years working at Nike, had just come over to Disney. He was now the new head of consumer projects. And he was doing what executives at Disney traditionally do. They do the familiarization tour. And in this case, Andrew found himself in January in Arizona outside of an ice arena. He was about to go in to see a Disney on Ice show. In fact, Princess Wishes had been out touring the country since 2006. Andrew was really there that night to learn more about Disney's relationship with the Feld organization. 
The folks at Feld had actually cut a deal with Disney back in 1980. Feld had recently acquired a couple of failing ice shows, Ice Capades and Holiday on Ice, and was looking to rebrand them and thought, well, if we use Disney characters, maybe that will be more successful. So the following year, they launched Walt Disney World on Ice, which eventually got shortened to Disney on Ice and, and turned out to be a, a hugely popular franchise. Mooney was just there to learn that business. But he, as he's standing outside the ice arena, he can't help but notice that he's surrounded by, you know, everybody else is queuing up at the doors, you know, waiting to get in out of the sun. Uh-huh. But there, there were all these little girls wearing Disney princess outfits. Andrew can't help himself. Eventually, he wanders up to one of the mothers. In fact, in an interview with Forbes magazine, he talked about, he identifies himself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your daughter, but I'm a Disney executive. <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm here for totally wholesome reasons, you know, a single man at an ice show. And exactly. he said, so he goes up and says, so I, I said to a few of the moms, oh, by the way, he's Scottish. What's the deal here? You know, and it's like. We were coming to a Disney ice show, and my daughter wanted to dress as a, a Disney princess, but the Disney stores don't sell Disney dresses, so I found a pattern and I made it myself. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so Andrew was like, hmm, okay, so if Disney made official dresses like this, would you buy them? And they all replied, oh, God, we'd buy lots. The very next day, Andrew gets started on getting people behind the Disney princesses product line. He came away from this with two ideas, not one. It wasn't just to put Disney Princess in the the Disney store. He was also watching, you know, like the, the Snow Whites chatting up the Cinderellas or the the Ariels playing tag with the Jasmines and the Bells. And it's like Disney Princesses could be friends. Mm. And so he he goes back, and it's just sort of like, all right, you know, have we ever done this? Have we ever grouped them together? And he starts the process rolling. And the interesting thing is. Almost immediately, he gets pushback from Roy E. Disney. And he, he's one that's like, I don't, you know, if we regroup, we rebrand the Disney princesses, that's confusing. More to the point, it's not in character. That's, and that's very important in the Disney world. But, but Eisner, on the other hand, was intrigued by what Mooney was proposing. So he turns to Jody Dreyer, who's the, in charge of Disney Corporate Synergy. And she organized what is then known as the Disney Princess Summit. It sounds like something on Instagram now. <laughs> well, I, I, to be honest, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in this room, Len, because Jody actually describes it in her 2017 book, Beyond the Castle, Discovering Your Own Happily Ever After. But at the summit, it's cast members from every division of the company. It's theme parks, it's studios, it's animation, it's television and consumer products. And they bring in designers, artists, writers. First thing first is establishing the criteria of who's going to be in this group. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you got to decide who's in and who's out, right? Yeah. Initially, the group that Mooney puts together, it's Ariel, Aurora, Mm -hmm. Belle, Cinderella, Jasmine, Mulan, Pocahontas, Snow White, and Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. Interesting. Mooney wanted Tinkerbell in the group because he had the stats that showed that 4% of all Disney theme park sales up until that time were Tinkerbell merch. Okay. There was definitely a demand out there. But as they're working at the summit, it's a lot of people who are very into Disney culture who now start, you know, getting very passionate very quickly. First, it's like, all right, what's the first Disney princess identifier? They agree the character has to be a royal, either by birth or marriage. Again, as Jody mentions in her book, 
Some are easier to add to the group than others. Like Pocahontas, for example, daughter of the chief. She's in. Ariel, daughter of Triton, ruler of Atlantica, is a natural. Belle, on the other hand, fell for a beast, which is a problem, who of course turns out to be a prince, such a kidder, and she marries him. So, all right, Belle's a keeper. Some might argue that Mulan fails the, the prince's litmus test, but remember, she saves her native land. None other than the, the emperor himself honors Mulan for her courage and service to China. So that seems more than adequate. Mulan's in. At one point, their original animated feature, they have to wear a princess gown because, you know, if you think about it, Cinderella is in her scullery outfit for, for much of the movie, but then she gets her gown. So it's like, okay, you know, so there's got to be a gown factored in. But they eventually settle on what in-house is known as the Big Eight. So it's Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, Pocahontas, and Mulan, Tinkerbell. Uh, Pocahontas didn't wear a dress, did she? See, now there was Pocahontas 2, where Pocahontas actually <laughs> goes to England and is presented to the king and queen, and she wears a formal ball gown there. So that's the sort of arguments they had in the room, all right? You know, it's like, yes, she wears deerskin, but if you remember in the second film, she was the lovely yellow gown with the big hair. Which we will never, ever put on sale because no one remembers it. But okay, all right, fair enough, all right. But the, the box is checked. So... Tinkerbell doesn't make the cut, but what they decide to do is hold Tinkerbell back for her very own brand, uh, Disney right. Fairies. In the mid-2000s or thereabouts, there was this very deliberate plan at Disney with the notion that little girls who were into Disney princesses would then be targeted to transition to the Disney Fairies line. As girls get older, they get a little bit more secretive. You know, they don't necessarily share with the parents. So they'd be into the notion of there's this secret fairy realm. Sort of the notion of, wow, you're going to take advantage of the, you know, the fact that little girls separate a little bit from their parents to sell them merch. It's like, yay, way to go, Mickey. <laughs> anyway, fall of 2000, the Princess Line has been launched. By the end of 2001, they already had $3 million worth of annual sales. So they knew like, woof, you know, uh, and then in, in less than four years time, it's up to 6 billion a year, Len. Holy cow. Yeah. Now we have Disney princess attractions that date all the way back to July 55 when, you know, the Snow White and her adventures ride opens at Disneyland Park. So you'd think with this brand new franchise that had just gotten launched and was making so much money for the company that, why didn't the Imagineers immediately get in to the Disney Princess attractions business? And in talking with a lot of the Imagineers who worked on the project, they were very excited. But management was like, whoa, hang on. We're in the concrete and steel business, guys. All hmm. right. If we build one of these things and it turns out to be a fad, we're going to have a big empty building that nobody's going into. Let's wait to see what's going on here. So they stood back and watched as Disney Princess went from a billion-dollar business to a $3 billion business to a $6 billion business. Okay, I like that trend line. Now we go. But even then, if you think about it, the very first thing they did, the first Bippity-Boppity Boutique, which doesn't open until April of 2006, they play it safe even there. They don't build a standalone building. They build the salon inside. Inside, right, yeah. They yeah. use an existing space, yeah. Inside of the uh, the World of Disney Store at downtown Disney Springs. Meanwhile, out on the, the West Coast that October, uh, they do the same thing. They, they create a Disney princess fantasy fair, but 
it's in the old Videopolis theater. So the notion is, okay, it's, it's, it's in a space we're not really using and we're doing something temporary. And if it doesn't work, we can always turn this back into a theater. To give you some idea of how cautious Disney was about, at least on the park side in regard to the princesses, the first really big thing you saw that was done in the parks with the Disney princesses during this period came in January of 2007, where we got the Mickey's Pirate and Princess Party, the hard ticket. I think that tells you volumes about their hesitation at that point, because it wasn't just this is a Disney princesses event. It's like, well, let's fold in the pirates because we just have Curse of the Black Pearl and that seems like a hit film. And, you know, we've already got a couple of sequels in the works. And, you know, we also have the branding that we've already done on Mickey's Not So Scary and Mickey's Very Merry. So people know with the Mickey name on it, it's worth their money for the after hour hard ticket. But it right. was there that they learned the hard way that doing the princesses in the park was going to be tough. And you have to remember, Len, this is even before we get the first of the new Disney Princesses movie, you know, 2009's Princess and the Frog. I promise the, the very next Disney dish, we're going to wrap this up by talking about when we get that next wave of Disney Princess movies with Princess and the Frog, Tangled, and of course, Frozen, and mm -hmm. how that totally changed how Disney handled Princesses in the Parks, which will bring us to where we are today. And you're going to go all the way through the decision that Disney uh, announced early this year to retheme Splash Mountain to Princess and the Frog? There we go. As we mentioned with the, the Lightkeepers thing, it's like, well, what right. IP are you going to use when you redo Splash Mountain? Great point. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including in-park audio and that special series coming up on the Disneyland Circus. On next week's regular show, as Jim said, we're going to finish up the history of Princesses of the Parks, and Jim's going to start telling us about the history of the Wonders of Life Pavilion, which opened in October of 1989. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's prepping a Holiday Lights tribute to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg using only the colors red, green, and blue. It's titled RBG and RGB. And you can find it <laughs> along with 280 more holiday installations. The 24th annual Enchanted Land of Lights and Legends from 6 to 9 p.m. starting mid-November at the Jefferson County Regional Park in beautiful rural Pine Bluff, Arkansas. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rent our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.